Hello, and welcome to another episode of Crash Chords Autographs. I, of course, am Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Up front, I just want to thank everyone for their patience. I know I'm two weeks late on posting the next episode, and that's because the roof of my apartment building caught fire, and I've been displaced since. Um, I'm hoping to be placed in more long-term housing soon, but I'm going to be displaced from my apartment for a while. I'm currently recording this from our hotel room that we're in. Uh, hopefully the audio is still okay. It sounded pretty good to me. That said, thank you for your patience, and uh, yeah, let's talk about this week's episode. Oh, actually, before that, let's thank my patrons. As always, I'd really love to thank Rob, Frankie, Emily, Greg, and of course, Case. Um, if you would like a thank you up front at the beginning of Autographs, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash and you too can sign up for my Patreon. At any level, $5 and above, you get a shout out on this show, plus a ton of other really cool goodies. So go check that out when you have a chance. Otherwise, just being here and listening means the world to me as well, especially now. But on to this episode. So this is actually something I got to do a little while back and I'm very excited about. Back in July on the 29th, I got to host the post-show interviews for the Indie Groundbreaker Awards for 2020. And it was a blast. You can watch the VOD on my Twitch channel. It should still be up as well as if you go to igdnonline.com slash groundbreakers, you can see the VOD there as well. So I'm sharing with you today the audio file of that. Um, I had a blast talking to winners, nominees, all sorts of different folks, judges for the competition. Um, the Indie Groundbreaker Awards is for tabletop gaming. It's an award show that happens every year, usually at Gen Con, but Gen Con was online this year, so they did it online instead. So again, this is only minorly edited. It's mostly the direct rip audio of the video interview I did, you know, the focus is having a chat. So I think it's perfect for this format too. Thanks for letting me ramble a little bit longer in this intro, but definitely enjoy this episode. It was a bunch of really great interviews. Check out the games they made for both the winners and nominees. Everybody makes some awesome stuff that uh, I learned a lot about during these post-show interviews, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Um, again, if you want to know more, you can go to igdnonline.com because the Indie Game Developer Network organized this event, and uh, I'm super grateful to them letting me be a part of it. But enough of that. Please enjoy the Indie Groundbreaker Awards 2020 post-show interviews. Ah, I was muted on Discord. Can you hear me now? I can. How's it going? Good. I swear I'm a professional. I've done this before. <laughs> uh, Christoph, welcome. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Um, and so you are uh, the creator of Free Spacer, correct? Yes, indeed. Uh, Christoph, so tell the folks tuning in a little bit about your game. Well, Free Spacer is a game where you, it's a sandbox game where you play a crew of a small starship. And you uh, choose basically a flag, and that flag determines the type of game you want to play. Like if you want to play bounty hunters, you want to play bout, uh, you want to play like agents. If you want to play like Shadowrun in space kind of textile stuff, if you want to play explorers and boldly go. You can do all that sort of stuff with the game. The game is uh, very sandbox based. It has a build-your-own-setting kind of approach okay. and uses an opposed dice pool mechanic and a bunch of resources. 
So it's kind of get this streamlined but kind of crunchy feel, you know, like science fiction. Excellent. And so what were some of your inspirations for this game? Oh, so many. Um, one of the last things I added to the game was, okay, so one of the game's major inspirations, major themes is like contract work. So the game has a contract system, mm -hmm. which does kind of dual duty of being a uh, basically a contract with the game master of what you're going to do. Because one of the problems you have with sandbox games, especially science fiction sandbox games, is you can wander off mm -hmm. distracted. Uh, the game has these con these contracts that basically go, okay, we're going to do this. And so the game master can, I don't know, make locations and characters that may be involved in that sort of thing. But the whole game is still driven based on the scenes and stuff you go, you run. Sorry. And... Uh, no worries. Yeah, so there's this contract system like that. And then on the... Uh, one of the final systems I added kind of dealt with the fact that there's always people who want to do other things. Mm -hmm. You know, those players who always want to build a castle, yeah, you know, like D&D &D or something? Totally. Uh, yeah, so we had those problems too. And it's like, well, the game is supposed to be about being this small crew who has to do these contracts and get kind of tested by the contract pushing them further and further along. But they always want to do these other things too. And so I looked at like Blades everybody and uh i saw that they had their kind of retirement system right i don't forget what it's called it might be called that i put together a retirement system which basically allowed you to either create a faction or join another faction because as a free spacer you're like above and beyond you can't deal with normal stuff you can only right. do this crazy job uh but this is your like exit plan so say your character we had a player who's really into ai mm -hmm. and ai is one of the impossible things in the setting which means if it happens it's a cool thing that his gm does and it's a thing but it's not an everyday right. thing like sentient ai regular ai does is everything has that that's the os right. on your computer <laughs> right so uh, I had a character who was really into trying to build sentient AI, and so that became their retirement plan as they were moving along, and they basically developed a faction that was interested in this, developed AI, sentient, that sort of thing as they went along. That's awesome. Um, I imagine you've been playing games your whole life. Uh, if you had to pick a favorite game that maybe set you on this path to make games, what would that be? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say a favorite game set me onto the path of doing these things. I think it's the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like the first game I played was like Red Box Basic Set, and uh, one of the games that basically inspired me to actually do this yeah. was uh, because I'm a video game designer. I was trying to hack Traveler Mongoose Early Edition, and I was having little things where it's like, oh. You have a really good fly, you know, uh, exosuit skill, but it's not really used for anything. And so I was bouncing around with that. And why do we have attributes at all? And all those sorts of things, all those questions you always ask when you play a game for a bit. And decided, well, instead of hacking this, I'm just going to tear it all down and start over from scratch. Probably not the best way to make a game with <laughs> that approach. Awesome. Very cool. Well, Christoph, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for chatting with us.
Um, congratulations on being nominated. Um, I'm Thank you. actually very excited to check out Free Spacer. Um, I got an info dump before this event of all of the games, and Free Spacer is one of those ones that definitely jumped out at me. So I'm excited to check it out after this. But thank you for your time. We'll ask you to leave the channel so we can bring on our next guest. Okay, great. Well, you can get that at IPR and DriveThru and Itch.io. So, I and will. there's Roll20 sheets for it, too. Yes, uh, Roll20. A godsend in the quarantine. Well, thank you, Christoph. Exactly. Have a great night. Talk to you later. All righty. Uh, we're going to gear up for our next guest. I want to shout out Christopher World. And here comes our next guest. Hello. Hello. How are you, Joey? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to get to talk to you. You um, were, are one of the judges, and you also are from uh, Drowning Moon Studios. You're not even one of the judges. You are the head judge, an important title. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the judging process for this. Um, how, how did you and the rest of the judges go about picking the winners? What was the process? So uh, we got... Uh quite a few games and we had to, the first thing we had to do was separate them into the categories and determine like which one was the best rules, which one was most innovative and so on and so forth. So it was mostly in the beginning sifting through and deciding what would be judged as what. And once we had broken them into the categories that each judge was assigned, this is your category, judge them on those particular merits. And then that was when the nominees were picked. So each judge picked, here's the five nominees that are outstanding in this particular way. And then once those were chosen, then they we kind of whittled them down to here's what the winners are. And all of the judges voted on the winners in each category. So their particular category was here's, we're sifting out the best ones of the category to put forth as the nominees. And then all of us got to vote on who the individual standouts were and got to decide who was the game of the year winners. So. It was, a, it was a lot of work, <laughs> but it was great. Um, there were amazing games that were submitted to this, though. It was, I, I got to see games I didn't even know existed, and I got to be introduced to companies and designers that I had never heard of that I'm huge fans of now. So it was amazing. That's excellent. I feel like in, like indie games are so underestimated and like like i'm a video game streamer uh, though i do play a ton of tabletop and board games i don't stream a lot of it but like even in video games i like to explore independent stuff because it just feels like it has a different vibe from the mass-produced stuff and the mass-produced stuff is great too but i think there's just some kind of rawness to the indie stuff that you just can't find anywhere else it's definitely really unique like you find ideas that you don't find outside of the big companies like people are more experimental they're willing to try things that they're not going to try anywhere else and that's what i really like about it like there was a there were games that were submitted that had like mechanics that you weren't going to see anywhere else like there was one that was submitted where you used a cookbook to like determine the mechanics of the game like you flip to a certain page and you picked like out of certain recipes and that's how you determined what your character was going to do you're not going to see that from like a major publisher that's it's so, so unique that's fascinating i love that i love unexpected mechanics it's hard to know what you'll love until you've tried everything and i feel like the indie game scene exactly. has such a huge variety of different stuff um so i assume that you are an avid gamer like the rest of us um has there <laughs> in the quarantine times the times we are living in currently is there a game that's really spoken to you indie or otherwise that's really kind of helped you cope with what we're going through right now 
Um, interestingly enough, there's a, Jay Lee has a game called Twain, which is a one-player game, mm-hmm. and it's it's very self-reflective. Like you play it by yourself, and you go to places where you're alone, and you kind of like play through the game where you are you've been separated from another part of yourself. It's like you've had a twin, and the twin is gone now, and it it makes you think about other people that you've been separated from, especially during this time when you can't go visit someone you love or you can't see them in person. You can only connect with them through something like this or through text or something like that. And that particular game kind of made me think about like the missing someone that was once a part of you or very close to you. So that one especially kind of was like, I don't know, very prescient because she was developing it and then released the Kickstarter for it before the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. And it was delivered like a couple of months into the pandemic. So oh, wow. that one especially made me think about it. Yeah, I feel like the pandemic has really changed how we view tabletop gaming, especially like I'm a pen and paper player through and through and I have both in person and online games. But now everyone has online games like I feel like mm-hmm. you, you whether you knew how to use roll 20 or not now you do because of what's going <laughs> on you know you kind of had no choice yeah. um do you, has has the quarantine times and the pandemic slowed down your tabletop gaming or are you still playing online as much as you would play in person oh no no it's gone up it's gone <laughs> up because I'm I am uh, I'm GMing over Discord like way more now than I was. Like I occasionally I would do one or two. Now I'm doing like two to three a week. Wow. Because people have more time and they want to do more games. And if you can do it through Discord, you're like in huge demand now. That's incredible. I have a lot of friends who are professional DMs or DMs for hire who, you know, help other people get games started. Um, I'm always curious with an experienced gamer, do you prefer to be a player or do you prefer to be a DM or does it depend on the day? Honestly, if you know how to DM, it's really hard to be a player because people are always asking you to DM stuff. So it's been a long time since I've been able to be a player because people always are asking me to run things instead. That's pretty funny. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's been so long since I've actually been able to play anything. I don't know. Well, if I've learned anything tonight, folks, it's that you should be asking Joey to play in your games. Get on that. So Joey can be a player. Thanks. Um, so with with being the head judge, I imagine a lot of the organization and the communication fell on you, right, to keep everything together? Yeah, yeah, it did. I, that was kind of my job as head judge. I mean, other than, you know, helping develop the judging process, but it was a lot of, you know, here's the deadline, please have this done by this time, um, and communicating with people. And how much time did you guys have to judge all of the games? Um, total, it was about like five-ish months or okay. so. So it wasn't terrible, but, you know, especially toward the end after we had the nominees, it was about two months or so to kind of sift through the rest of those and make sure everybody had gotten a good time in with them to make a good decision. Uh, my final question before we move on to our next guest uh, is, what's the first game you ever remember playing, board game or otherwise? Board game or otherwise. Um probably uno actually as a kid like in daycare yeah i feel like everybody starts with some kind That's of probably card, the game. First. card game yeah well joey thank you so much for your time this has been a pleasure um uh tell folks who are watching where they can find you and the stuff you work on on the internet 
Okay, um, I am the owner of Drowning Moon Studios, which is uh, a small tabletop game publisher. Um, we also do like pick up and play LARPs as well that are published online. And uh, you can buy us at drowningmoonstudios.com. We're pretty easy to find. So excellent. if well, you're interested in what we have, check us out. Awesome. Well, I definitely will. Joe, thank you so much for your time and you have a great night. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. And straight into our next guest. Hello. I can hear you, but I cannot see you. Hi. Hi. And who am I speaking with? Because we've been going out of with, uh, Sorry, you're speaking with Ricardo Evangelo. I'm the uh, founder of Fitpoint Press. Excellent. We uh, published and made uh, Humblewood. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Ricardo, thank you for taking your taking the time to chat with me. Sorry, uh, our, a couple of our guests were out of order, so I just want to make sure that folks introduce themselves at this point so we know who we're, who we're chatting with. Um, but Humblewood, best art winner. Uh, were you shocked, surprised, overwhelmed? I all of the above. It was. It's just really exciting that uh, the artists got recognized for what they did because, like, we have like over thirty artists who contributed to this product with like so many amazing little pieces of uh, like different kinds of birds and animals all coming together. Very uh, like, it's just very heartwarming all the content that was created. Even the monsters that are there are very approachable, even though they're scary. It's it's an exciting uh, time, especially for the artists who have this kind of recognition, especially for something like a project this size. That's awesome. And talk a little bit about the process of creating the art for Humblewood, because it is gorgeous. It just, it, it invokes this kind of childlike wonder, just looking at the pictures. Um, was the was was it was there a person you had in mind for the art when you first set out or did you have to like uh, search high and low for the perfect artist so uh, the the beginnings of humblewood are actually kind of interesting um lisha hannigan our art director um she had been posting art of these cute little birds that were brandishing halberds or casting little magic spells and conjuring little pieces of bread and whatever mm -hmm. and we saw that and we talked to her and said, hey, you know, being a company at the time that made reference materials for fifth edition, we said, hey, we'd love to make some little monster cards or stuff like that where you could play as these little creatures in your game. And then as she started developing the art and creating with that, and we brought some writers on and started developing things, we realized we had something much bigger. And so she helped curate the entire team of artists and who we were bringing in to like, do all these little pieces here and there as we created the story we would feed that back to her give her the art descriptions she would communicate with them we would see the sketches come in deliberate have her as the main point of communication so we didn't have to confuse the uh, the artist because having too many people talk to them is is a bit of a burden on yeah. them and that way she communicated with them like phenomenally got these pieces in and when it came time to like designing the book and going into production it just made it so much easier because we just had like these pieces that were made specifically for it. Uh, there was even times where we would be like, we would be building and be like, oh, we need 10 new pieces. Right. And Johannigan would uh, rally up 10 artists and in with one to two weeks would have these gorgeous crafted pieces that we wouldn't have anticipated in such short periods. And it's just, these people are great at their craft. It's amazing to have uh, seen the process as it came in and worked with them. 
Excellent. Well, that's awesome. Um, I don't want to get too distracted, but there's a lot of love in chat for your dog. So folks want to know what the dog's <laughs> name is and talk about the dog. So this is Riot. Uh, she is one of my four dogs here in the house. Um, she's uh, she's a rescue. She has one eye and she's adorable. She just she's kind of sad because she doesn't get that much attention from people these days because she can't see that many people. Aww. So we had some people here the other day and she was just screaming at them from outside the window and it was it's adorable but it's also sad because she really wants to get that attention. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I start to wonder that the dogs of the world don't understand what's going on. Like they're like people used to pet us, and now no one's petting us anymore. What's happened? Um, oh, she's petting pets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do want to talk a little bit about um, Humblewood and it, and just your origins with games. What inspired you to create Humblewood, a game like Humblewood? Um, well. Originally, uh, like I come from uh, making like Facebook and mobile games like about a decade ago, trying to create little worlds in those places. Um, video games are very much a hit-driven business, and it never ended up working out that way. Right. Uh, we started making gaming accessories about four years ago because we felt that was a way to help people play and work in that space, which is what led to us trying to approach Humblewood, or at least making these reference cards as a branch out from uh, just using the SRD and 5e and figuring out what we could do there. We wanted to explore and build our own worlds mm-hmm. and just the way that things were being crafted, the art that was coming out, it just, it really helped fuel what the story was and what we were building and creating. And uh, we ended up creating various play tests to make sure people were really interested in the stuff. And the reception kept coming back as extremely positive. People liked the, the theming they loved you know the characters that were being built and they couldn't they couldn't have enough of it where right now we're working on um, like a couple more books in like to follow Humblewood and it's just there's so much expanded content and world that we're building that we can't wait to share with everyone and uh, it's just it's all exciting that's excellent uh, did you ever anticipate Humblewood would grow like this did you see any of this coming? Uh, no, we we uh, we were like uh, awestruck that it got the attention that it did. Um, we ran a Kickstarter with as most of our projects, and we're anticipating that we would have a successful campaign and be able to fund and create maybe a few hundred books. But fourteen thousand people backed the campaign and allowed us to really make this expand the book beyond our like the, what we had anticipated we, you know we got more art we have so much more expanded content that is being developed um i think there was just this love for this setting being able to play as something that wasn't just your classic humans elves dwarves being able to say hey you know i'm a cool owl i get to fly around and glide and uh take care of the bad guys it's it's a different feeling it makes it more homely and it brings you to a different space than you get with just classic uh, euro rpg yeah i think that's what's really interesting about something like this is giving you a different perspective right like as a human or as an orc or as an elf or dwarf like these are all humanoid characters and so it's going to be very different than playing a owl you know a a, you would it would probably change the perspective of how you see everything in the world around you and i think that that must be really nice to engage with a, a fantasy world in that way which is such a different thing yeah, no, it definitely, it was, it was interesting to be able to, like, create those new races and create this exciting new world. 
And I know that right now we have 10 races and we already have like three or four new ones planned just for the new setting, especially uh, fleshing out the Alluran race, which is the cat people who just got a mention in the first book. <laughs> but are definitely having a bit more of a stronger play in the second. That's awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, gaming beginnings. I'm sure that you must have gotten to tabletop and board games pretty early. Can you remember the earliest game you've played or the earliest tabletop experience you've ever had? Um, my earliest tabletop experience was probably back in 2003. Um, it was with some high school colleagues of mine. I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, they introduced me to a game. I was some dwarf fighter, you know, easy, bring you into the concept. Uh, within an hour, they had uh, killed me. <laughs> and I re-rolled as my uh, dwarf's other brother and continued the story. Uh, that was my first session, and then I didn't play for another <laughs> six years. But uh, it was it was interesting to see what that world was, because I had never experienced that. It was like an overnight thing, getting to build and play in this. It was definitely interesting. But uh, I kind of got back to it when I was uh, in university, playing with um, people from the like, local comic book shop and uh, just really engaging and figuring out how Dungeons & Dragons really worked. Yeah, I think that uh, that's the story of a lot of folks, right? Getting into it younger, but then not really committing to it until we're adults and kind of can plan for yeah. ourselves. Um, I'm curious now in this time of quarantine and this time of pandemic, uh, how are you connecting with other people? Are there any games you're using to connect with other people online? Um, right now, I don't have any, any active games. Um, <laughs> we've actually been, we've actually been super swamped over, uh, with our team, uh, right now because of COVID, a lot of people are engaging in, and, uh, wanting more and more content from us so that actually we're all hands on deck in building that stuff. And sometimes it's more evenings and stuff like that, that we're actually building and creating, curating the content and kind of playing that stuff and figuring it out instead of playing our, like a game on ourselves. I know some of the team, they are playing some uh, Forge in the Dark stuff um, and they're really excited about that. I've uh, seen that happen in the background. Um, we did have a weekly game when we were playing in the office that I know that I'm excited to resume when we have the opportunity to. Um, we'll see how things pan out. Sure. Yeah, it's tough in these times, right? We want a game and we want to connect, but also we want to wear a fucking mask and stay the fuck home. Um, it's just kind of how it goes. Um, well, um, thank you, Ricardo, so much for uh, joining us. Congratulations on your win. Um, and I hope, uh, why don't you quickly share where folks can find you and Hubblewood on the internet? Um, so you can find Humblewood at humblewood.com. On there, you can see a comic book that we've uh, started working on. If you want to purchase the stuff, you can go to thedeckofmany.com. Um, additionally, uh, on Twitter, you can go to at the Deck of Many. If you want to follow the art director, you can go at Leisha Hannigan. You go there, you can uh, to ours. You can see all the different artists that were involved in the creation of this, and so you can go and check out their work because they did amazing work and you should really support those artists i agree i second that well thank you so much for your time sir and you have a great night no problem you too take care take care all righty uh our next guest coming up here they are i can see can yeah I see hello alistair how are you 
Hi, fine, thanks. It's so good to have you. Um, so you are also one of the Indie Groundbreaker judges. Um, yes. Talk a little bit about the judging process from your perspective. Did you find it difficult because there were so many incredible games to kind of narrow stuff down? Was it a struggle to kind of fine tune the winners? Yes, in my case, I was assigning best rules. Mm -hmm. So it was like a lot. I, I mean, I am a system developer, so I really love reading different kinds of rules. Mm -hmm. So in the end, my process, my personal process for your unit was like, okay, I will need to play test this with two different groups. Mm -hmm. And the first group was with my more crunchy-oriented friends. It was like, oh, I need this mechanic, and if I min-max this, and yeah, you know that kind of player. Right, sure. That they munchkin and min-max everything. <laughs> yeah. And the second group was like more of the narrative-focused players. Mm -hmm. And my main process for judging was, okay, I'm going to play this with the same game with both groups and see how they adapt to the rules, if they understand the rules on the first try, because that was also like really important for me. Uh, you can have the most awesome rule set, but if I have to ask the developer to explain it to me, then it's not really well written. Right. And at the end, uh, the five I chose, uh, the five nominees were Saber and Great Soul Drain Robbery. Mm -hmm. Those were more, those appeal more to the uh, narrative crowd. Mm -hmm. uh, middle point was Free Spacer. That was like very much in the middle for both groups. And then Great American Novel was loved by the narrative focus group. This was an interesting experience because the game has a, like a really great focus on United States, uh, United States novels and literature. Right, sure. Yeah. And well, we are not from the United States, <laughs> so a lot of the cultural reference and the purity was referencing. We were like not too much knowledgeable on it, right. but we still managed to have like a great experience of it. I felt it was very similar to what City of Mist did. There was a PBTA plus fate, but what City of Mist went to the action action side of things. A great American novel went to the other side of things, to the more narrative and character development. Mm -hmm. And the other was Maces. That, as I mentioned, was really fun because I have a game called The Maze. So we were playing Maces with The Maze. <laughs> and I really like that system because it feels... It felt like a dungeon crawler system, but different. Like each character having their own dice and using that to solve the, the issues. Well, like a very different mechanic and it encouraged people to teamwork, which is sometimes not really common on that kind of games because most of the time dungeon crawling, people like to make like their own super ultra powerful character. Right. And they so, and that, that doesn't involve a lot of teamworking. And Maces actually promotes the teamwork. Mm -hmm. I was a very hard choice between those two. In the end, I went with Maces. Yes. The... Well, yeah, I really, that was like my full process for the game. Yeah. And trying the rest of the nominees was, was really fun. I mean, I managed to play a lot in the past few weeks than I have played in the beginning of the year because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. So it was really fun trying to organize games with all the different games that I were for sure. going to be on. And so since the focus for you was on rules, I'm curious as a player... And let's go talking with tabletop, pen and paper. Are you more of a rules lawyer, a person who likes to follow the nitty gritty of the rules and like just stay within the structure? Or are you actually counterintuitive to what we're talking about now and you like to kind of bend the rules and kind of branch out and see what you can push? As a player, it completely depends on the game master. On the, the, on the game master. Yeah. Because you have a game master who is like very keen on the rules and like, no, 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 you have only that much life and now you're dead. Then I will play by the rules and make a really by the rules character that is most of the time is going to be overpowered. Uh, one of my co-founders still 
complaints about one of my past Ionic characters for, <laughs> for Pathfinder. Nice. Well, normally I try to be like a more open side of the rules. Like, yeah, like the rules work for the narrative and not the other way around. Right. Like, if I can skip this rule and that will make the game more fun, I will do it. That makes as a GM and as a player. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? You want, at the end of the day, a good game master wants the players to have fun, right? You don't want to yes. exclude anybody because of the rules or certain things. I've had a bad experience with a lot of the Star Wars game systems because a lot of the folks I've played with are like, well, that didn't happen in actual Star Wars, so you can't do that thing. And it's like, but why? Like, that's not, I feel like that's not a good enough reason. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, gaming past. Um what what is one of the earliest games you ever remember playing, and that maybe got, set you on the path to wanting to play more of these kinds of games? Tabletop the first game games. I bought, I was visiting one of my aunts in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. I was around twelve years old, maybe thirteen, and I bought the starter set and the three core books. I had some money that I have saved for that trip <laughs> for Dungeons and Dragons three three point five. Nice. And the fun part was that I was. Um, I think the QL in the in the United States will be around seventh grade, eighth grade. Mm -hmm. Here it's like a different part after primary education. Right. So I didn't and the fun thing was that I didn't found anyone to play with for around three to four years until I entered high school. Mm. But in that in the meantime I like read the full books, the two point five books like from front to back several times. So I have pretty much them memorized by the time I started actually playing in high school. And yeah, that was like the first game I actually managed to play. Mm -hmm. And I still have that table, like, I think it's around 10 years later. Wow. We still, we're still playing that game. That's impressive. I don't know anybody whose games last that long. I've had, I've had some games that have lasted a few years, but I'm not currently playing any games that I had played in the past. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Is that just because you yeah. all stayed in contact and just been able to move the game yeah, online? Yeah, we, we went to the same university, mm -hmm. so it was pretty easy at the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, two of the players went into medicine, so it was really hard for them at some point. <laughs> Sure. But yeah, we still continue playing every once in a while. And yeah, we all live like pretty much in the same region of Mexico City. Mm -hmm. So we are we actually keep it in touch and try to play every once in a while. And that's how we have managed to play that same story all over the, all over the years. That's very impressive. That's really cool. Well, before we wrap up, um, I would love folks to be able to check out um, Axo Stories and um, find you on the internet. So why don't you share your information to all those folks watching who may not know you and where they can find you yeah. online. So my Twitter, that is the one I'm most actively with the game stuff, is at AlastorGB. So there's like no loss there. Mm-hmm. And for the games, we have a Patreon. You can just look Patreon Access Stories, and we will be posting the updates there. You can also look for Access Stories on Facebook, which we are also active. And in around a few weeks, the web page should be ready. We are also ready on Drive We have some content, mostly for 5th edition. We have the bases, and we have the early access of Tales from the Gods, mm -hmm. which is a nice godlike single-player game if you want to try something different. Excellent. So yeah, that's pretty much how you can find me on the different games we are making. We are trying to promote mainly Mexican creators. Yeah. As I mentioned, from Mexico City. So we sure. are trying to promote a lot of the local talent, uh, game creators, artists, and like editors. Like the, the full process, we're trying to keep it as local as possible mm -hmm. as to promote more people into the Western part of the TTRPG community. That's amazing. That's really cool. Um, well, I'm definitely going to check it out for sure. Alistair, thank you for your time and you have a great night. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye.
Alrighty, how we doing, chat? Everybody doing all right? Good. I believe up next is Chris O'Neill of Ninth Level Games, um, whose game uh, Mazes. We were just talking about one. Um, I hope everything's looking good on your end. We had some connectivity issues earlier, but it looks like we're okay now. All right. Am I talking to Chris? This is Chris from Nightfall Games. Hi, Chris. How are you? Uh, we're real good. We're very excited. Congratulations um, <laughs> on Maze's win. Thank you very much. We are um, blown away. Uh, Polymorph, the game system that runs Mazes, is something we've been working on for a very long time. And um, Mazes, the expression of it, and the fact that people are you know, really picking up what we're putting down, uh, it's kind of hysterical to us that you know our, our emulator of a dungeon crawl is the you know the indie game because that's it's it's very different than what other people have played or done before and uh so it's very it's very exciting it's very satisfying that's very satisfying that's awesome i wanted to talk a little bit about polymorph because i had not heard of mazes, mazes before i started prepping for tonight and i'm really yeah. excited to hear about this system so maybe tell viewers who might not be familiar with it a little bit about it yeah absolutely mazes so mazes is new um it, unlike a lot of our other ninth level games it's not uh it's not available digitally and it's not available in um distribution it's only available to select retailers or directly from us mm -hmm. um because it's emulating the feel of a game from 1979 so a little bit of the game is trying to find the pieces of the game to play it um, we have done it as part of the Zine Quest 1 and Zine Quest 2. Uh, there might be some weird background noise because we're uh, outside near a lake. No worries. We're literally like, we're driving around the van. Um, uh, but uh, Polymorph, um, our most common Polymorph game is the Excellence. My uh, the the president of my company has given me given me in, in information on the side. Let me know. <laughs> I should I should I should push stuff. Just feeding you the um, info. This is your platform. Go for it. Feeding the info. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the core of the polymorph uh, game that we have, uh, uh, and we hope to have a number of other polymorph games to come out. Um, there'll be two more the, this year. Um, uh, Good dogs and Savage Sisters. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the core of Polymorph, the idea is you start the game and the game asks you a question, which is what role do you want to play in the game? And that determines what die you are going to roll. So the first role is called the Paragon, and it's I want to be the very best at something. right? So whatever I do, I'm just really, really good at that thing. And I am less good at everything else. Um, and so then I'm the D4. And how the system works is instead of rolling numbers and then adding to it, you are rolling against the static success sheet. Mm -hmm. So the first, it's called In Mazes, which is, uh, you know, again, a fantasy dungeon crawl. So people can understand the mechanics a lot easier than a lot of other games. Um, the, the, the successes are called Books, Blades, Bones, or uh, Books, Boots, Blades, and Bones. Um, and so for books is a two or a three. So whenever I'm doing something that requires me to be using my mind or my knowledge, what I want to do is roll a two or a three. Um, so if I have a D4, I have a very good chance of rolling that. Right. If I'm the D10, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, if you ever roll a one, if it's something that your character can do, it also succeeds. Mm -hmm. So 
um, the things that your character can do, it makes um, the very easy. It makes us you have very simple character classes that are very emblematic and you understand what they can do. And it's not rules heavy. Um, all of the rules are pretty much, you know, do I succeed or don't I succeed? Uh, if I'm good at something, I get advantage, so I get to roll my dice. I get to roll two of my dice. Um, uh, but I'm always ever only going to roll my die. So, oh, I, I rolled and I hit for damage. What do I do for damage? Oh, roll your die. Roll the same die. Oh, uh, nice. you always just roll the same die. You really, you only, you know, you, you need to because uh, you want to be able to roll it for advantage and disadvantage. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, that all sounds really awesome. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your inspiration for the winning game, specifically mazes, this idea mm -hmm. of making this dungeon crawl. Are you someone who grew up playing dungeon crawl related games? Do you play a lot of, uh, murder hallway D and D campaigns? Like where did the inspiration come from? Yeah. So, um, we actually included a, uh, so the, the game ma mazes is four zines. Um, that are called Swords, Sorcery, Maze, and Monster. Yes. And um, Maze is the book about how to run Maze's games. And it has a Codex N, right? So it has our version of the Appendix N of, like, all of... These are all of the things that are important. These are all the source material. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do, what I really was trying to do, was get back to the the roots um, I started playing D&D &D in 1982, 1980, I think 1982. Okay. Um, the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon was very important to me in 1983. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so, uh, I was, I was pretty young, but, uh, uh, I, I was obsessed with, uh, all of the things. And I, you know, in that second generation of dungeon gaming, yeah. um, and, uh, all of that was built, and it's interesting because fantasy fiction changed to be about that gaming yep. instead of the fantasy fiction being what was driving the game. Right. Um, uh, and so what we did is we actually sat down, and, 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 and this is really important to mazes as a game, is the fact that we call it novella-style gaming, um, where the idea is that you are telling short, complete stories that are focused uh, and like a novella, it's just one thing and the characters can come and go. And it's not, they're not stories about a, uh, you know, a farm boy who rises up and, you know, becomes the God emperor of all the planets. It's the story of, you know, she has a sword and she has a score to settle. And, you know, uh, doesn't matter. No God will stop me, you know? Right. Um, one of the big roles in the game is called the door to adventure. Um, every game starts at the door to adventure. Um, there's no backstory. Um, <laughs> you're literally kicking the door in. You're going into the story. And then throughout the game, if you need to have background elements, you do, do flashbacks to fill things in. Uh -huh. and that actually gives the, 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 the MC, the maze controller, it gives them darkness, which is a, uh, a currency they can use to do cool stuff. That's awesome. That all sounds so right. cool. Um, so uh, we're running a little low on time, and so I would love yeah. for you to have an opportunity to tell everyone who's watching right now and who will watch in the future where they can get mazes. So here's the big thing. Uh, if you are, there are still some seats for our Sunday game at Gen Con. Uh -huh. um, you, so you can lug that in. We, uh, we run virtual games of mazes and our other polymorph games. Um, you can uh, host it online games. 
uh, and you can purchase it directly from us or from select stores. But you can find us at ninthlevel.com, 9-T-H-L-E-V-E-L.com. Amazing. So, Chris, thank you so much. It's been a blast talking hey, thank to you. you. Thank you for taking time out of your precious trip to chat with us. And it's perfect timing because it's starting to rain. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, you have a fantastic night, and I hope everybody checks out Mesa's. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care. All righty. Moving right along. How we feel in chat? We need to stretch. There we go. Hello. Hello. Am I speaking with Christopher Gray? That is me. Christopher, it's so nice to chat with you. I'm just checking my cheat seat, cheat, cheat sheet. Um, so you are the creator of Great American Novel, one of the nominees yes. tonight. Um, why don't you first start by telling the folks watching right now a little bit about Great American Novel? Uh, yeah, sure. This is a, um, uh, a narrative-driven game that is designed to emulate sort of a literary experience. So at the table, you might have action, you might not, but it's not really about that. It's about the characters, the things that get in the way of they want what, what they want, and, you know, uh, all of the uh, drama that comes from that. That's so I, tr I try to create a framework where we could uh, not worry about hit points and harm or any of those things and just focus on character, character growth. In fact, character arc is part of the mechanics of the game mm -hmm. and, and just, you know, play out literary experiences. And it's great. It doesn't have to be great American, but that was, you know, a nice marketing <laughs> name. And so in the creation of this game, where did you draw your inspiration from? Were there some great American novels that inspired you to make a game like this? But actually it wasn't really from great American novels. What I wanted was a storytelling framework. Um, and, and, and I use great American novels, a vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, the inspiration really came from, well, what happens if I take powered by the apocalypse mechanics and like combine it with fate and add a bit of like, you know, tin candles and just sort of like cram it all together <laughs> and create an experience because those games really touch on what it's trying to do. Like they're trying to, you know, narrative driven and character driven and, um, in, in creating some system for it. And a lot of story games tend to be like little. Uh, Lucy Goosey, yeah. you know, and unless you're a very good improvisa improvisational actor, sometimes they're hard to grok. Yeah. And I wanted something that was more, uh, you know, canonized. It's like this is how you do it. This is the the, the steps, the phases, and um, and just and just sort of put it out there. And I, I just put Great American Novel on there as sort of as an example of what this framework could be used for. That's amazing. And so you see this framework as something that's really versatile that you could use for countless other things. Yeah, I've, I've run everything from The Shining to Marvel. Wow. If, if, if the story is important because of characters, it'll work. And um, and in fact, I, I, I've used the framework now. I have a new Kickstarter coming on August 10th, which is it's going to be a real quick two-week thing <laughs> to recoup my costs, and that's it. But it's um, it's Great American Witch, and this is really wanting me using the framework for like a World of Darkness game. So it feels trad. You can have an endless campaign, entirely character focused, and not worry about being overpowered. That's really cool. I like that. I think that I think what what got, gets lost sometimes with a lot of tabletop games is the storytelling element. I mean, I know growing up, I played a lot of. I mentioned it before in my last interview, murder hobo campaigns yeah. or murder hallways. You know, where you're just killing stuff and like. <laughs> 
when you're when you're a snot-nosed little kid, sometimes that's fun, right? Action, 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 action. But as I get older, I find that I'm really way more into storytelling. Um, are there some stories from your childhood that really uh, affected how you want to tell stories? Well, I've always been a storyteller. Um, I wrote my first story when I was 10 years old. Um, I'm a novelist. My wife's a novelist. Um, I, I just, I love books. I love stories. And whenever I run games, I've been running games forever. I've ever, I've never really cared about the rules. You know, right. I, I was always like, what, what can I use the, how can I use the rules to tell a story? And, um, and so that's always been my focus. I, I, I was just running into a situation where I, I was frustrated with combat rules. Right. Because everybody gets focused on that. Even if you're a good RPR and you want to be like in the story, you're still kind of focused on that meta of, well, if I do this, then that. And why not have a game that does that but make it a narrative thing instead of a combat thing? If I do this, then that. And if you do that, it's a better story. And so there's a lot of exchange of narrative control. There's a lot of um, uh, vehicles that you can use to make a better story. And that, that's what I was after. I was just wanted something that I, I could use where the, the machine wouldn't get in the way. And that goes that goes all the way back. I was running uh, rifts, you know, without looking at any of the rules wow. back in the 90s. So I that's... just didn't care. All right, throw the 20. We'll see what happens. That was my, <laughs> that was my distilled version of palladium rifts well i feel like also if you're running a game at the end of the day you want to reward the players right and if you lock them into the rules lawyering of it all you're, you're not gonna have as much fun because you can't get as creative and i think it's important to expand and have a vehicle to expand that kind of storytelling um, well i think rules can 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 do that like right. rules don't have to be about combat they can be about narrative and you see that a lot in the indie game world and and that's why i love it so much um, uh, we're in a time of pandemic and quarantine. At least we should be. Not everybody is doing what they're supposed to. But I we haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> while, while in this time, has there been a game that's really brought you some solace, something you've played that like has at least helped keep your spirits high in this time when we're all stuck at home? Uh, I, I found that any game does that. Um, I've been playing games more at home with my family, which I didn't do as much before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just getting my kid, he's 12, and my wife, who doesn't really uh, play low-playing games very often, you know, to sit down and play, like, Fiasco. And just having that sort of, you know, that moment where it's like, we're just just here as people playing games and we're not worried about the world. I found that that kind of experience has been great. Online gaming has been wonderful, too. And I've had, you know, the pleasure of having really great groups um you know playing my games online with me and um and that's that's been wonderful too so yeah i I think that we need people and we need interaction and we need to get away from screens as much as possible yeah especially if you have kids because they're making them go on to zoom for eight hours a day (laughs) um so you know you know finding games that the whole family can enjoy that that seems to be the secret sauce for me that's excellent. Well, before we wrap up, I want to thank you for your time. I want you to tell folks who are watching and who maybe watch this later where they can find Great American Novel and where they can probably find you somewhere on the Internet. Uh, Great American Novel, you can find at Gallant Night Games. Actually, the best place to find everything is at drive through of course. <laughs> um, I am a great author with an E basically everywhere. So if you see me there on Twitter or Facebook, I'm there. I'm very interactive on those two platforms. And um, please stop by Great American Witch dot uh, com because that kickstarter is happening august 10th it's only going to be two weeks we're just going to go quickly get through it and get you that game as soon as as november so if you like great american novel you'll love great american witch 
Amazing. Well, Christopher, thank you for your time. This has been a delight. Thank you. Um, Thanks for doing this. My I pleasure. appreciate it. Um, and you have yourself a fantastic night. Okay. You too. Take care. Take care. All right. Moving along. How are you feeling, chat? Do you need to stretch? I'm trying to read it as it comes through, uh, but, you know, it's there's so much going on. All right. I see a picture. Lucien, are you there? I hear um and there, there's I the am. video hello oh um so uh lucian you are the winner of most innovative game with um if i were a lich man now as a fellow jew i have to say that it was so exciting to hear about this game because i had no idea what it was at first but because it's clearly a pun on Fiddler, I was I was very interested. Um, I would love for you to tell chat and folks watching later on who may not be familiar exactly what If I Were a Lich Man was. Okay, um, so it's a very short game. Um, it's an only an hour long game. Um, it is exactly an hour long. It is timed, um, and it is um, modeled after um, a couple of Jewish traditions. It has um, some parts that are modeled after the Passover Seder um, in that there's a, the characters are um, a good lich, uh, a wicked lich, a <laughs> simple lich, and a lich who doesn't know how to ask questions. Amazing. And the lich who doesn't know how to ask questions, in fact, cannot ask questions in the game. <laughs> um, and so you have this whole thing. Um, but the, the it's actually, it's it's it has that kind of deadly serious Jewish humor, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's sort of the tone of the game um, because it is about um, the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States right now. Yep. Um, it's about white supremacy. It's about racism. It's about fascism. It's about all of these things. Um, so the premise uh, of the game is that um, liches are Jewish coded villains because right. of phylacteries, right? right? So we have phylacteries that sort of come into the fantasy literature from um, to fill in and the phylacteries for, for Jewish ritual, right? right? So I started with this idea, okay, liches are Jewish-coded villains, so let's lean into it, right? And embrace, okay, we're liches, right? So if Jews are liches, the, the people who are trying to kill us are lawful good paladins. Obviously. Right? Obviously, right? So that's how you sort of get, right, our current um, struggle against, um, you know, authoritarian government forces and, and all of this stuff, right? right? So we have Jewish liches who are constantly being attacked by lawful good paladins. And, and the, the, that's sort of the background story. And that what, you're, what you're actually doing in the game is your four siblings. Um, and the four siblings are named after the four... Um, sides of the dreidel in Yiddish. Amazing. So it's like um, it's like Gantz and Talb and right. It's the names of the thing, right? Right. And and each one of the dreidel you play with a dreidel. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's an actual dreidel, uh, <laughs> which is just a d4, right? Of course. Uh, and the sides of the dreidel um, correspond to the different siblings and do various things in the in the game. And and what you're actually doing in the game is actually having like a community meeting to try to solve two problems. You're mm -hmm. debating two things, right? You're debating one, should we continue using phylacteries, these things that are binding our souls as right. liches, 
or should we discard them? And everybody comes with like a, a preset opinion about this. Right. That are all very conflicting. And the second question is, how should we deal with the paladins who are trying to kill us? Right. So you're debating these two questions in like a timed period. Um, and then when the timer goes off, um, one of you rolls the dreidel and whatever, whoever it lands on is the one who gets to decide which of these two issues you're actually going to vote on and which of these two issues is going to be shelved for a later meeting, <laughs> right? So it's this like horrible, like community organizing mm -hmm. dilemma in the face of like a religious crisis, but also a like fascist political crisis. Um, so that's sort of the, the the general gist of the game. That's really excellent. Like, it, uh, especially in a time like we're going through now, you know, and and every like I would ask normally what inspired you, but it's clear what inspired you. Literally, yeah. everything on fire right now inspired you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just have to like, how did this idea come to you? Like, obviously, you have a history with D and D and a history with Jewish heritage, and you know, knowing this stuff. How did this idea germinate? Um, a couple of things just like collided at once. It was right at the beginning of 2019, um, uh, and there was like a lot of anti-Semitism, anti sort of like coming in mm -hmm. on like various events and attacks and graffiti and stuff. I live in Brooklyn. I so live in Brooklyn like, as well. Like We're not that far of, from each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. So there was like a series of anti like like synagogue vandalism yep. things. So I was like thinking about all that stuff. And then like all of these people that I know were having arguments about um, like the racial coding of different D&D races. Um, yep. And like my friend James Mendez Hodes, who's really smart, um, was you know doing a bunch of writing on yep. the racial coding of orcs, and then people were arguing about orcs and about dwarves and talking about like the racial coding of these different things. And then um, somebody said something on Twitter, I think, that was like maybe we should stop calling liches phylacteries phylacteries because you know phylacteries and fill in and Jews and anti-Semitism. And then I was like, but what if we keep calling them phylacteries <laughs> and Jews are actually liches and like paladins are terrible because they are terrible. <laughs> they are terrible in my experience. In every D&D <laughs> so, &D game, yeah, they are terrible. Sort of, this like sort of conf like collision of things just kind of like happened in my mind. And, and then I thought of the pun and then I was like, I guess I have to do this. Also, um, Big Bad Con was running a game jam um, about folk, folk tales. Uh -huh. um, so they were like, oh, folk tales and fables, game jam. So I was like, you know what? I want to submit something to this anyway. Uh, so I'll just, I'll go with this idea I have. So I decided to work on it and, and I submitted it to the game jam. That's amazing. Well, we're just about out of time, but I would love for you to tell folks watching where they can find the game and where they can find you online. Yeah, so... Um, all of my, most of my games you can find um, at necromancy.itch.io. Um, I'm also, also most of them are on drive through, but if I were a lich man, isn't because it's so small. Um, so um, you can go, just go to necromancy.itch.io. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm extremely obsessively online because it's how I deal with being stuck in my apartment. <laughs> so uh, my Twitter is otheogony. It's a pun, so I'm going to spell it out. It's O H underscore. T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y. 
Um, so you can follow me on Twitter and then find my games at um, necromancy.itch.io. Including if I were a little. That's awesome. Well, Lucien, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations yeah, on winning. And have a fantastic evening. Thank you, too. Have, and congratulations to all the other winners and nominees. Bye. Take care. All right. I must be looking right at Mark. Yes. Mark, welcome. Hi. Hi. How are you? Pleasure. Thank you. So um, here. you were nominated tonight for Return of the Stars. Return to the Stars. Pardon me. Um, yes. Tell the folks who are watching a little bit about Return to the Stars. Well, it's really thrilling to be nominated alongside such amazing games, uh, especially for my first game. So Return to the Stars is all about optimistic science fiction. Now, don't get me wrong. I love me some good dystopian movies and novels. <laughs> I love me some antiheroes. But we've been doing that for a good 15 years now. Dark everything. Um, and then my news headlines and my Twitter feed started to get really dark. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I really wanted to create um, an experience that was about going, meeting new people and helping them and capturing that sort of sense that the future can be better uh, than today. Not mm -hmm. that there aren't lots of fun and interesting things to do. Uh, and a ton of the inspiration comes from uh, the original uh, series of Star Trek, which also had uh, come out during a time when there was a war in Vietnam yeah. and a struggle for civil rights and political assassinations. And I, I think some of that uh, desire uh, for being able to affect change because you can imagine a better world was some of the energy that powered that. And it seems to be some of uh, what makes, um, you know, the people who are playing the game interested and excited and happy about it. So that was really uh, what I wanted to, uh, to achieve with uh, Return. I mean, and I, I was about to ask what your inspiration was, but as you described it, it seemed pretty obvious. You know, a lot of the old Star Trek uh, like mottos was to um, to help and to not intervene if you could find a way to not yep. change the course of things but if you could help you should help and diplomacy first and and I think that that kind of positive attitude while yes I think it's equally important to engage in the negative things that are happening right now I think it's also equally important yeah. to have a sense of escape and it sounds to me like Return to the Stars is that kind of escape well, it's escape, but it's also very much um, informed by that classic Star Trek tradition of the issue show, where you have aliens black on one side and one on the other, and they hate each other because they're white on the wrong side, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you the, just be, you, you, there are ways of uh, bringing in issues while still giving people uh, a, a, an escape. And I think it was Ursula Gwynn who said, you know, the direction of escape is towards freedom. Uh, so what actually is an accusation of escapism uh, actually about? Uh, so, you, you know, definitely uh, the game is part of uh, the hope punk movement, yeah. which is all about, um, you know, 
feeling that you can care about things and want to stand up for things and want to be uh, helpful and not thinking that that is, um, um, you know, naive, you know, that the punk part is from knowing that it's going to be hard, uh, but going for that anyway. So definitely sort of hope punk is a huge theme in the game and also cosmopolitanism, the sort of sense that uh, we're better off if there are different ways of being in the world uh, and that that diversity is very valuable. Uh, And at the same time, there are you know, sort of universal human rights. So if old Star Trek had that sort of sense of, oh, um, we have a sort of non-intervention policy, uh, part of the challenge in the game as a player is balancing your respect for both of those principles. And uh, should we intervene here? You don't have a simple rule of thumb that says, oh, get you off the hook. Right. Uh, so that's kind of uh, one of the things that's fun to um, engage with it as well. But the other big inspiration for the game was actually just gamer and gay culture. So my sort of United Federation of Planets, as it were, is actually a sort of overgrown gaming convention uh, that in a post-Scotia utopia... <laughs> People can hang around and talk about their favorite, uh, you know, seventh uh, reboot of Yuri on Ice than the 23rd century, (laughs) you you know, and was that the best or was the one from the 25th century the best, you know, and all the fan fiction. And so like cosplay is a skill. So and that uh, came from uh, conventions really for me being a place of respite but where you could still engage with media uh, that was really concerned about society as well. Uh, so those, those, those are probably the two big um, influences for, for return. That's amazing. Well, we're, we're sadly running out of time uh, already, but I do want to give you an opportunity to tell folks where they can find Return to the Store Stars as well as find you uh, out there on those internets. Uh, sure. So uh, the website is simple, festive.ninja. I snagged one of those cute little ninja addresses. Uh, and then uh, I do science fiction news headlines uh, from the setting every day on uh, at Twitter at uh, uh, ninja underscore festive. So festive ninja or fist at uh, ninja underscore festive. Um, and Thanks uh, for the chance to connect and talk to people and uh, uh, all your work uh, getting all these amazing, amazing games out. I know I have so many things to read. I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. You have a great night. Thank you for taking the time. Take care. All righty. Moving on. Um, Thank you all. We're running a little long. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, I'll give my spiel towards the end. But now I think I see Laura Simpson. Are you in the house? I am. Hi. Hi. How are you, Laura? Um, So I'm I'm great. Thank you. Game of the year. How amazing is that? Um, It feels amazing. (laughs) Talk a little bit about. Um, Sweet Potato Press and Companion's Tale. Tell people a little bit about this yearly award-winning game. (laughs) Um, So uh, Sweet Potato Press is a super small indie uh, 
indie press. Uh, it's it's me and Dev Prakayasa. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just the two of us. Um, and Campaign uh, Sale is our latest um, big game. Um, and we work pretty closely together, uh, although we have sometimes like different interests. Campaign's uh, Tale. <laughs> it is a map making story game that is all about telling the story of a hero's journey through the perspective of the hero's companions. And the hero is not a playable character. The hero is only known through the words and actions of the companions and the players. Um, and one additional element is it, there's so there's not only the map making and the myth making, but there's also this uh, friction of who uh, who who understands history? Like not in terms of like whose history is recorded, how is it recorded, and there's that conflict. And I encourage that for players so that uh, you don't rush to consensus to agree on one set set of events. Instead, I encourage them to disagree through play. That's amazing. I love that idea. As someone who grew up with a lot of hero-based games, you know, from video games like Legend of Zelda to TV shows like Doctor Who, companions always play such an important part, and yet it's always the hero's story. In the except for those odd episodes of Doctor Who where it's with the companion the whole time and the doctor's nowhere to be found. But I think that this is such a brilliant idea to let the companions tell the tale because you have to assume that most of the time that's what's happening, right? The hero doesn't have time to tell the story. The bard <laughs> sidekick who's singing songs is telling the story. Um, right. What was your biggest inspiration for creating this game? Oh, okay. So um, so I had a couple of inspirations. Uh, one of my big inspirations was um, The Name of the Wind. So Patrick Rothfuss. Yep. I, I loved reading it and just interest. Uh, interwoven is like poems and stories and songs and you keep coming back to that and it gives you such an incredible feeling of the world mm -hmm. um, in a way that I, I felt this is, this would be incredible to play. Um, also um, I would say Dragon Age. So uh, nice. around the time uh, Dragon Age one, no mm -hmm. Dragon Age Inquisition was already out. So nice. I already played origins and um, Dragon Age two. And at this point I was like, Oh, I really like how there's all these other elements. I really, and I love the relationships between your companions. And how you could kind of see how um, each one of them was just this, their own person with their own outlook. Mm -hmm. And I really, it felt, made them feel alive. And also uh, N.K. Jemison's 100,000 um, Kingdoms mm -hmm. series. And also, I think around the time when I was in early development, I also read the, um, the Dreamblood duology, where I really loved how she imbued a sense of place and... Yeah. Um, and kind of sketched out this outline of different cultures that I thought, oh, I really want that. I want to be able to kind of to drop this onto our map and start playing with it. Um, so those were some of my biggest influences That's uh, in designing this game. Yeah, uh, it's funny you mentioned Dragon Age. I am a streamer on Twitch, and I am currently playing through Dragon Age Inquisition. That is the game I'm currently playing. I'm perfect. I'm currently on process to romance Josephine because she's a delight and I adore her. Um, she is, right? But I can't help but flirt with Dorian every time I talk to him because he's so dreamy. Yes. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I, I just want to romance everyone. Everyone, right? Free love <laughs> for everybody. Um, but uh, going back to your game and and the creation process of it, how long did it take you from idea to publish for this game? How long was that process? Oh man, this was a real labor of love. Um, so I first started writing 
uh, Capane's Tale in the fall of 2013. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I was... I wanted to have a game for Metatopia. It's a game designers conference where you come and you play test your game. And I'm a user experience designer, so I'm constantly user testing in my actual job. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, oh, I need to have something for this. Um, and I, I had those inspirations, so I just made a rough sketch of a game. But um, it, it really started to come together. So in about a, around a year or two years of just playtesting at almost every convention I went to, um, folding in different things, conversations I've had with people. Um, I would say around, like, around Gmation, so, like, early February mm -hmm. of 2015, I was like, I know what my game is about. And um, then I just started uh, thinking about, well, what do, how do I want this to come together? Like, what form do I want to take? Do I, do I want to make a game box? And, this so this part um, I didn't kickstart till 2017 mm -hmm. because a bunch of things happened like life blew up sure. and uh, right yeah <laughs> and um, I I kickstarted and then from there a, a lot I did, I had to learn all about materials and how to kind of put together a product uh, so digital product design totally different than <laughs> physical product design yeah. um, and at that point I also had um, I had backers that backed at a content level. So I have uh, so like four of the companion face cards. So like all of these cards with the faces on them. Mm -hmm. um, they're, uh, so four of them are uh, people who backed at that level. Um, so there was that collaboration uh, working with one artist, Daphne Hutchison. I, I mentioned her like, in my speech earlier. She's an incredible illustrator. And it was just this collaboration for two years of... Um, working on the cards, working on uh, the compass, which is, uh, it shows up on different parts of the game. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and uh, eventually uh, this part of the map, which is uh, just such an important part for me uh, because it's, there's so much about those map making marks. Right. And it is just a, a lot of collaboration. Um, I worked with Rain Wu, who uh, did the logo, um, and and it just was uh, a, like a huge undertaking. And I play tested the daylights out of it. It's uh, every time you play, it's a one shot basically. It's about right. two and a half hours or so, maybe four hours if you make an afternoon of it. Um, <laughs> and the back half of it is all variants. So the variants, um, me and Dev Parker we wrote together and. Um, it was just a, a, a long period of writing collaboratively and really like fine tuning that tone. So whew, that took a long time. Um, well, uh, yeah. I, I just want to say that of all the games I've seen, and I've seen a lot of games in the last uh, few weeks, this one is the one I've been most excited about. It just seems like a brilliant way to tell a story. Um, and so while we are running out of time, I would love for you to tell folks where they can find you and your company on the internet, as well as where they yes. can get this game. Absolutely. Um, so uh, both Dev and I are on Twitter a lot. Uh, so I'm Lab Mouse. So Lab Mouse at Twitter. Uh, I'm often there just talking about random things. Um, he is Dev uh dev p s s p p or just at dev p mm -hmm. either one of those work um our um website is 
sweet-potato-press.com. And Companion Sale could be purchased uh, either in the physical copy with PDF or PDF alone um, on IPR. So Indie Press Revolution, you could go pick it up there. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time. This game looks amazing. Congratulations on Game of the Year. You absolutely deserve it. And uh, I hope you have a fantastic evening. Thank you. You too. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Hello. Hi. Shrung, how are you? I am very well, thank you. A little warm here in New York. I'm sure Laura told you the same thing. Yes, I am in New York as well. I'm in Brooklyn, and since my computer is right in front of the air conditioner, I cannot yep. have it running while I'm streaming, so I feel <laughs> you. I absolutely feel you. Um, so uh, let's talk about your game. You were nominated for Quietus, am I correct? Uh, sorry, say that again? Quietus was the game you were Wrong. Nominated? No. I was nominated for an Elegy from the Hive Witches. Oh, I was given misinformation. Elegy of the Hive Witches. Um, well, uh, oh, I see it here now. I just don't know how to read. Um, you this were... is the problem that happened at the Oscars, so I don't <laughs> fault you. So, Elegy, um, and also a winner in 2019. So, talk a little bit and about... 2018, yeah. And 2018, wow. Yeah. I'm dealing with a legend here. I'm so excited. Lol. No, it's because <laughs> Lucian, Lucian and I are submitting a game next year for the same category which is hilarious because he's like so you won the last two years i won this year and let's hope the two of us together win next year <laughs> and i'm like that would be amazing lucian that would be amazing um well i want to talk a little bit about elegy of the witch for those who maybe have never played this game talk a little bit about what it is yeah so um elegy from the hive witches is part of my trilogy of funeral games which are all very different but they all have funeral titles so they're a trilogy um and it was commissioned by jason cordova from the codex uh magazine for the codex magazine and published in codex void and it is a exactly three-player game where the three of you play hive witches slowly um and gruesomely killing the band of astronauts that's entering your hive um, and you do this uh, through, I, I, I was, in, I'm, I tend to be interested in trying out unusual mechanics. Mm-hmm. So the mechanics of the game are you start off with doing Mad Libs uh, to tell <laughs> the story of the astronauts as they land on your planet. And then the words that come into the Mad Libs, you write them on these pieces of paper that you then fling into the, on the table. And as they explore the hive, there are all these prompts about rooms. When they enter a room, you draw two words from the piles and describe how the astronauts are slowly being killed, incorporating this weird combination of two words into your uh, storytelling. Wow. Uh, I actually played it last night with my partner to bring me good luck for today, right? (laughs) Um, And you get weirdly, you you might draw like purple hippopotamus or like, or like, you know, a rainy bicycle. And you're like, what the hell is that? Right. And then you are slowly uh, killing these people, and it, the, the, the tactile elements are important. So you have to like cross out the names violently. You rip these pe- papers into shreds. At the end of the game, you dip. You all three close your eyes and dip your hands into this pile of torn paper to draw one out. Uh, so I was really interested. In, like I'm really interested in language game stuff. Mm-hmm. So I really admire, for example, Thorny Games and Works, a dialect last year's winner. I really admire that. And I'm really into how physicality affects. So I tried to combine those two aspects into this game. That's amazing. Um, 
where do you draw inspiration for this game and games in general? Or do you turn to other media? Are there other games from your past that you pull this kind of inspiration from? I mean, I firmly believe that artists should draw inspiration from the wide world around them mm -hmm. and should consume arts and sciences and all kinds of different things, right? So Feast, which won two years ago for Most Innovative, is directly based on a installation art piece, right? It is based on Portrait of Ross in L.A. by Garcia Torres, right? Mm -hmm. That's very, very direct. Um, this one, I would say not as directly from a particular piece, but like, you know, the whole idea of the witches song, the three witches, right, from Macbeth. It's the idea of the three uh, Neil Gaiman used a lot in The Sandman, the right. idea of this triptych. It's in that Christian theology, right? It's always interesting. I've always been into this idea of witches. Um, and something I learned in um, when I used to work in corporate consulting, uh, I worked in this consulting firm who talked about this one model of creativity is combining seemingly disparate things. And so I was working on this game. I had this idea of witches. I'm like, well, I don't want to just do witches. I'm like, wait, what about space witches? I'm like, wait, <laughs> what about space witches who are insects? Uh, and so I, I tried to do that uh, to come up with this. The first draft of the game, I, which I ran with my partner, was awful. It used playing cards and it numbers. And, and he was, he's not a gamer. He's like, I, I don't like or get this, Sean. I'm like, okay, drawing board. Um, and uh, and also the first theming in the game was going to be published in Codex Blood, uh, but then Jay said, "Hey, can you move it to Codex Void?" Which actually opened up my thoughts. So the the basic uh, world building of the game is like combining insects and genetic engineering stuff with religion. That's the combination that influences the, the thing, and and that was because Jason asked to be in Codex Void. And that made me think of void. What about a religion that worships the void and nothingness? Um, that's where that came from. That's amazing. I, I, it's kind of this this crazy improv when creating these things, right? Like you want to throw things at the wall and see what sticks, because you don't. Yeah, like know. that's just one style of design, right? Just right. Like some novelists plan everything, and some novelists just write and see where it goes. I feel I feel like people often ask artists, "What's your process?" And I feel that's unhelpful if you're thinking of emulating that process. Yes. But it's helpful if you're thinking of, oh, what are the various ways one can make art? Yes, right? so. for sure. Totally. Um, you clearly are someone who has loved games, I am assuming, for a long time. What is one of the earliest games you remember playing? Tabletop, board game, video game. What's the earliest game you really remember digging into? Um, I uh, So I don't know if you've heard, there's a... There's a uh, traditional group board game called Carom. Mm -hmm. That's like a British import into India that I used to play, I remember, with my father's side of the family, so my various uncles and things. That's one of the earliest things uh, I remember playing. Uh, interestingly, I do not make that kind of abstract board game, right? right? So I don't make games like checkers and chess and Carom and those kinds of things. I actively do not like making those kinds of games. Uh, which is funny. But I remember enjoying playing that uh, long ago um, with uh, with my family. And that was, uh, really, I was never a sports person. Right. Um, I was actually, uh, people used to be like, you need to be more manly. sports." <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, I like the men in the sports, just not the sports <laughs> themselves, right? Um, exactly. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, I remember doing that. And I remember, I remember 
my sister and I used to play a lot of pretend games, like a lot of them mm-hmm. at home. Like, like I remember we'd, it was really funny because we'd, we'd be in the house and we'd play a game that we called house house uh, in, in Bangla. It's, it sounds different. Right. But uh, we'd be like, imagine we are mother and father and let's pretend we're cleaning the house. My grandma's like, why, why is this fun for you? Why are you pretending to clean the house? Why did you actually clean? And obviously we wouldn't actually clean. Right. Um, but like, I remember doing a lot of pretend games. I remember in the third grade, this is very distinct. I remember on the bus to school, my good friend, who I'm still friends with, who I actually speak to on the phone sometimes still, because he also moved to the U.S., um, I used to run free-form, like, story role-playing games. Um, and so one can argue that I've been a role-playing game designer and DM from the third grade. Because <laughs> That's I did incredible. That from the third grade up to, like, the seventh or eighth grade where it stopped becoming cool to do that. Um, <laughs> and then I restarted doing that in college just in a more formal way. Right? So. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Well, uh, we have to start wrapping up, but I would love for you to tell everyone watching and everyone who watches this in the future where they can find Elegy of the Witch and where they can find you on the internet. Yeah. So, uh, Elegy from the Hive Witches is found in uh, Codex magazines. You can look into the Void issue. So, Codex Void. And you can get that through the Gauntlet if you're a member of the Gauntlet, or you can get that on Drive Through RPG right now. Um, uh, you can f- most accessibly, you can find me on Twitter at Sharung Biswas, my full name. You can also find me on itch under the uh, name Astrolingus, so star tongued. Uh, and I want to give a shout out to uh, the new project uh, Lucian and I are working on together that just released. It is Honey and Hot Wax, an anthology of erotic art games. Uh, do check that out. We are both innovation award winning game designers, and uh, we put this book out together with a with like nine or eight other really innovative game designers. So do check out that. That's amazing. Well, Sharung, thank you so much for taking your time to chat with me today. You have a fantastic evening. Congratulations on previous wins. Congratulations on making such awesome games and have a fantastic Woo. night. Thank you so much. You have a good night. Take care. Bye. All right, folks. Um, so we're going to wrap things up. Um, if you don't have anywhere to be, please stick around. I'm going to raid another channel and uh, bring all of you lovely folks to view a friend of mine. I haven't decided who yet, but thank you for tuning in. Everyone who's new to the channel, if you feel like dropping me a follow, I have been just a little bit about me really quick at the end. I am DJ underscore Stormageddon here on Twitch. I am Matt, aka Stormageddon in life. I host a variety of podcasts. I produce a variety of more podcasts. I stream on Twitch three times a week. A variety streamer, mostly video games. Uh, I'm playing Dragon Age Inquisition right now, um, but I'm also going to be playing a bunch of other things. I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much to Peter and everyone else at um, uh, the Indie Game Developer Network. It was a pleasure to host this tonight. Um, I hope you all had a good time. Um, I want to thank all of the winners, the nominees, the judges, Everyone, everyone who was here tonight and who was in the Discord tonight, you all are incredible. Um, This has been a blast. So again, I'm going to end the stream and then we're going to go raid another Twitch channel. Maybe I'll see if I can find someone doing some tabletop gaming tonight. But thank you again so much for being here. This was a pleasure. I've been Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Have a fantastic night. That's it for this episode of Crash Chords Autographs. Our theme music is by Michael Kill. Our logo was designed by Case Aiken and Joey Amans. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. You'll help us reach more listeners. Questions, comments, or guest recommendations? Email matt.storm at crashcords.com or hit us up on Twitter at Crash Chords Web. Thanks for listening.
Hi, this is Victor Devon, and I am the host of We Burlesque, the podcast. Every Monday, I talk to fabulous denizens of nightlife, including burlesque performers, both seasoned and new to the form, drag performers, performance artists, DJs, and artists who make up their respective scenes. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please visit WeBurlesque.com to check out episode recaps and see all the formats available. And remember that music is life. Life is good. Bananarama? Okay. Okay, all I, right. A band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. As a pastor's kid growing up in the 90s, there was a lot of mainstream entertainment that I was sheltered from. Stephen Root, he does one of the voices. Okay. You know him from news radio. Do I? You know him from office space. Do I? You know... Ah, <laughs> uh, most things, really. So, now that I am an independent and out queer 30-something, I'm finally asking my friends to teach me about all the stuff I missed out on. Wait, Raffi did Beatles covers? Yes, he did. My mind is blown. <laughs> he did Octopus's Garden. And, um... Yeah, I remember Octopus's yeah, Garden. No. I didn't know that that wasn't a Raffi original <laughs> until just now. The re-education of Hazel Tart. Subscribe now. Kevin Costner. He was so foxy. You... I know the name, I don't know the face. I cannot... What is Kevin Costner? Can you just show me a picture of Kevin Costner's face, no, please? think of the guy... This is hurting Not Cheech Marin, but think of the other guy in Tin Cup. I've never seen that.